This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. We can imagine the Lord as he's telling them about his ultimate purpose, the reason he's left heaven and his glory is to become a man and humble himself, become a servant, and, 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 and he's going to be a sacrifice for them. And, 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 and he sees their, this total rejection by them of the very thought of it. He sees their depression. He sees their sorrow. And we can see him look, looking at them and, and asking the question. And then we can also say, seeing him saying, yes, I do. Yes, I do want to die for them. He'd been with them such a long time. He'd spent a long time with them. I mean, he, he, had, he, had, he came to the conclusion that Paul said about himself in Romans 7.18. Romans 7.18, Paul says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform it, I, good I find not. So during this time they were together, there were times when when. He looked at them and he just got just beside himself. He just got so frustrated just with man that he came to save. He came to save the world and he expresses his frustration as he did several times in the Old Testament as Jehovah Jesus and in the New Testament with two words, how long? How long, he says in Matthew 17, 17, the couple of verses up, verse 17, verse 17, then Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring me hither to me. He knew what was in man. He knew what was in man. He, he, he knew what man was when he was Jehovah Jesus, and he, and he had brought his people out of Egypt and, 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 and going to save them from utter destruction, going to bring them into the most beautiful land of milk and honey, do everything for them, provide for them constantly, 40 years, shoes don't wear out, everything provided. 
and they turn against him. And he says to Moses in Numbers 14, 27, Numbers 14, 27, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I've heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me. Numbers 14, 11, Numbers 14, 11, the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me and how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? And he's frustrated when he says that and he's frustrated and, 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 and even though he's frustrated, he decides to go forward. He, paddle, he battles through his frustration and die for them. And that's the power of Romans, the verse in Romans 5.8, Romans 5.8. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet provoking him, Christ died for us. While we were yet frustrating him, Christ died for us. And so when the Lord describes with such clarity how he's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. We see the Lord Jesus looking at with perfect vision, not only what's going to happen to him, but at his disciples he's willing to die for, and, and at the details of how he's going to die. And what's amazing to us, and like we said, is that, is that seeing both his death, which he really suffered through at the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat the drops of blood, and he said, if there's any other way, please, he sees the details of his death. He sees the, he sees the, the, the really discouragement from his disciples and he doesn't turn away. That's amazing. Doesn't turn away from his mission. He doesn't say it's too much. It's too much to give, to gain so little. I get so little. It's not worth it. He doesn't say they are just not worth it. That becomes for us the point of worship. We worship him because of that. Now, one thing that's interesting about how he describes his death is that you would have expected, as he's describing his death in verse, what's going to happen to him in verse 22, you would have expected that he would have said something like, I, I will be betrayed into the hands of men. But he doesn't do that. He switches to the third person and it's almost like he's talking about an abstract person that's not himself when he says, you know, the son of man is going to be uh, betrayed. And when he does this, it's so, it's so interesting because when he does this, he's becoming extremely objective. It's almost like he's divorcing himself from his own emotions and feelings here. He's almost like he's stepping out of himself and looking at this from a very objective point of view. In other words, it's like he's saying, there will be a man, he will be fully man, and he will die for man. Oh, I just happen to be that man. But I'm not talking about me right now. Oh, well, he actually is. Well, he's not saying he's not talking about it. But he's, he's talking about this from a very objective point of view when he calls himself the son of man. He's saying, man, fully man, must die for man. If man's sins are going to be paid for, and so he calls himself the son of man, and he's saying he's man. He's saying he's a 100% man. He's nothing short of being a man as he is God also. God became a man. If a man is necessary to pay for the sins of man, then a man I will become as the son of man. He, uh, Genesis 9, 6, Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. 
for an image of God. In other words, life for a man, a man's life dies for a man. A man, a man. If a man kills a man, a man must die for the life of that man. So he becomes a man. And he loved to call himself this. He loved to call himself the son of man. That term, son of man, is only used once in the Old Testament. It's in Daniel, all the other times where it's translated son of man, it doesn't say son of man, it says son of Adam. But only once in Daniel is it used in son of man, when it's referring to Christ. But, but, but in, the, in the New Testament here, when he talked about himself, he loved to call himself the son of man. He loved to emphasize that, look, though he was God, he became a man, a 100% man. He calls himself the son of man. He's saying it over and over again when he calls himself the son of man. He's saying over and over again without saying, he's saying the words of Philippians 2.6. Philippians 2.6. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Did you notice how many times in those verses, man, 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 God, God, form of God, thought it not right to be with God, but is made in the likeness of men, being found to fashion as a man, and becomes an emphasis equal with God because he is God, he makes himself a zero reputation and is made as a man. He wants to forever be known as the son of man who was killed as a ransom to redeem man. Forever. And there's um and, and this whole son of man, this very comforting statement. I don't know how you feel when you come to genealogies in the Bible. Maybe they, you know, when you come to genealogies of the Bible, they go, oh man, how many times do I have to read this begat, begat, uh, finally get something interesting. But there's a very interesting genealogy. I mean, I try when I read the genealogies to try to think about who was that? What did he do? But there's something that, there's something wonderful about his genealogy that's tucked away in the third chapter in the book of Luke. And, and it starts off in verse 23, Luke 3.23. Luke 3.23 starts off by saying, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years old, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which is the son of Eli. And then you go after that, after that verse, you run, you run through a lot of the son ofs, the son ofs, the son ofs, until you get all the way back to Adam, where the last verse is, in Luke 3.38, Luke 3.38, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. I like that. Adam was the son of God. It's the only genealogy in the Bible that links Adam back to his creator in the statement in Luke 3.38, Adam, which was the son of God. That links, links us back to God as Adam was the son of God. And this is the great robbery of evolution. Evolution steals from man his lineage back to Adam as being the son of God. And that's a very comforting thing to see that Adam, our great ancestor, was the son of God. Uh, okay, now, he's going on, and now he uses the word betrayed. He says the son of man was going to be betrayed. He's describing what's going to happen to him, and he says he's going to be betrayed. Actually, the Greek word here that behind this word betrayed is very interesting because most of the time, the majority of the time, 
this word that's used is translated as delivered, delivered. Romans 8.32, Romans 8.32, it's the same word here. Romans 8.32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered, it's that word that he used when he said betrayed, delivered him up from us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Judas, Judas Iscariot, delivered the Lord up for his own gain. And he's now saying he's going to be delivered, and we've just seen in Romans 8.32 that God delivered him up. I can never think of the word delivered without thinking of my friend, Dr. Chaim Sheraton. Sheraton, he's Polish. And you might say, well, how did a Pole get the name of Chaim, which is a Hebrew name? Well, it's kind of interesting there. Uh, when he immigrated to the U.S., he had a, he had an unpronounceable uh, Polish name, as he told me, and he said that he thought he would choose a name that that American people would know and understand. So he chose he chose a name which we can't say either, Chaim. So I don't know why he chose that, but anyway, he chose that word. So Chaim Sheraton, he's the he's the chief of nephrology over at New York Presbyterian Hospital in in Queens, in New York, and. Uh, and one night, Chaim and I, I used to work in this, in, in this area of nephrology. So one night, Chaim and I were, were having dinner together. And, and he told me about um, how he ended up coming here to the States. And he told me about what happened to his father. So Chaim was about five years old when the Nazis invaded uh, Poland. And he and his mother were hid in really a pit in the barn uh, with some boards over it in a Catholic family's uh, uh, neighbor's barred. And his father was hid in a pit in, in another uh, neighbor's uh, barn under some boards as well. So the, the Nazis came through one time and they were looking for Jews. And so when the Nazi squad arrived at the barn where he and his mother were hiding, the Nazi sergeant told his men, you just wait outside the barn and I'll go look and see if there's any Jews. And so the Nazi sergeant entered into the barn alone and he pulled the boards up and he saw Chaim and his mother there shivering in fear uh, underneath the ground there. And so the Nazi sergeant closed the boards up, went back out and said, there are no Jews in the barn. That's, that was amazing. But the same squad then came to another barn, the other barn where Chaim's father was hiding in the ground and the owners of that barn, the, the, the owners of that barn got scared and they told the Nazis, the Jews have hit themselves and they're in there under the boards. And so the squad went into the barn and found Chaim's father and then he was murdered. And so what the family did, that other second family did, was they delivered up Chaim's father to the Nazis. And that's what the Lord is talking about here when he said he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. And he sees clearly Judas Iscariot's going to deliver him into the hands of his enemies. And what the Lord also saw was how God the Father was also going to deliver him up in the greatest act of, 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 of God being for you and for me, of God being for us. That's the greatest act when he, it says in, in Romans 8.31, Romans 8.31, what shall we say then to these things, if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things?
So he says in verse in in the verse here, verse twenty two, verse twenty two, he says is going to be delivered, be delivered into the hands of men. Those are the men that 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 are that are, are going to give that are that he's going to be given into into their hands. And those are the same men that he came to save from their sins. And then he further explains. He says in verse twenty three, he says they shall kill him, and the third day is going to be raised again. And then it says they were seeing sorry. So these are the men, they shall kill him. And, 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 and so from those men's point of view that he's going to be delivered into the hands of, nothing less than his blood is going to satisfy their anger, their rage, nothing less. And he tells a parable about this. He tells a parable about this to explain in Mark 12, Mark 12, 1, Mark 12, 1. He began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard, and he set a hedge about it, and digged a place for the wine fat, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husbandmen a servant, that he might receive from the husbandmen the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him, and beat him, and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones, and wounded him in the head and sent him shamefully, and, and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and, they, and him they killed, and many others, beating some, killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. See so those words, so piercing what he said. This is the heir, come, let us kill him. He had, he, he knew the bloodthirstiness of the ones he was going to be tra- d- 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 delivered into. He knew that nothing was going to satisfy their rage except his blood. But he also knew he had to be killed because this, he was going to be the sacrifice for the atonement of man's sins. And, this, and as it says in Leviticus 17.11, Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. It's the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. The altar for him was a Roman cross, and, and, and he was the sacrifice, and he had to be killed in order for this for the, for the atonement for the souls. If there's no blood, there's no atonement. Nothing less for God, nothing less for God would do than the blood shed would, as is to, satisfy, to satisfy the requirements for the atonement. Nothing less for God than blood would satisfy God for an atonement. Nothing less than blood would satisfy the rage of his enemies. Nothing less for God than blood would satisfy his need for atonement. Now, all right. <clears throat> but he didn't end, thank God, he didn't end his explanation with just that he's going to be killed. He moved on. He moved on to say in verse 23, and the third day he shall be raised again. So now we see him looking beyond. He's looking beyond. He's looking far beyond his death. He's seeing beyond his death to the resurrection, and it's an encouragement for him. It's a joy for him. 
And the joy that's described is in Hebrews 12, 2, Hebrews 12, 2, where we're told, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross because he was focused on the joy that was set before him. And that scene of Jesus enduring the cross from the, because of the, the, the joy that was laid out in front of him, we are told to copy that, copy that. It says in Hebrews 12.1, Hebrews 12.1, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your own minds. Now, that, those, those, that verse there, those verses are talking about a great cloud of witnesses. And you say, who is those? Who are those people? Well, we've just come off the heels in Hebrews 12. We've just come off the heels of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, the great God's hall of faith. And in each one of those persons in that great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told to consider, consider, consider Abel, but, but consider Abel who by faith offered uh, a blood sacrifice to God, which God required. Consider Enoch who by faith pleased God. Consider Noah who by faith made an ark. Consider Abraham who by faith left home. Consider Sarah who by faith had a baby when she was 90 years old. Consider Abraham, who by faith offered Isaac. Consider Isaac, who by faith blessed Jacob. Consider Jacob, who by faith blessed his sons. Consider Joseph, who by faith called for his bones to be taken out of Egypt. Consider the parents of Moses, who by faith hid the baby. Consider Moses, who by faith refused to be king of, of, of Egypt. Consider Moses, who by faith left Egypt. Consider Moses, who by faith sacrificed the Passover. Consider the Israelites, who by faith crossed the Red Sea. Consider the Israelites, who by faith circled the walls of Jericho that it fell. Consider Rahab, who by faith hid the Jewish spies. Consider Gideon and Barak and Aunt Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who all by faith did many great things. So after listing all these great people of faith in chapter 11 in, 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 in Hebrews, chapter 12 opens up, says, Wherefore, seeing we also are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are those great cloud of witnesses? I think there's none other than the people who were just listed in, in, in chapter 11. They're watching us. We're on display in front of them. We're told to realize that we're on a stage of life. And that there's an unseen audience, you can't see it. And most of the time when you're on a stage and those lights are in your eyes, you don't see the audience. And that's us. We're on the stage and we don't see them, but they're watching us. And we're encouraged. Put on a good performance for them. Put on a good performance for them. Don't disappoint the great cloud of witnesses because they're the unseen audience and they're watching us in our lives. Just imagine that they're in the front row on the, uh, on, on, on the stage that we are performing our life act on. And there sits Abraham and David and Samuel and the prophets, and they're watching us in our lives. 
Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. That's P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. That's tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. For more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.